Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Innovation Mostly Gets Harder. So one of the most influential economics of innovation papers from the last decade is called Our Ideas Getting Harder to Find by Bloom, Jones, Van Rienen, and Webb. It was ultimately published in 2020, but there'd been drafts circulating for years before that. And this paper is ostensibly concerned with testing a prediction of some economic growth models, but its broader fame is attributable to its documentation of the striking fact. Across varied domains, the R&D efforts necessary to eke out technological improvement keep getting higher. So in this week, I'm going to look at some of their evidence and also some complementary evidence from other papers. So Bloom and co-authors start with Moore's Law, which is the observation that for the last half century, the number of transistors that can fit on an integrated circuit doubles every two years. Now, of course, each doubling of circuits is a lot of work. It's the fruit of human ingenuity, a lot of R&D. But what Bloom and co-authors show is that the amount of human minds that we have to throw at this problem to keep up the pace of doubling keeps rising. So they specifically have, uh, they calculate the effective number of researchers, which is if you take all of the annual R&D spending on semiconductor research and you divide it by the wage of a researcher, this is their measure of research effort. It's, you know, you can think of it as the number of brains that you could buy to throw at this problem if you spent your entire R&D budget on hiring. And while the rate of progress in uh, the number of transistors that can fit on a chip has been constant at 35% per year. The effective number of researchers working on this problem has grown nearly 20-fold since 1971. So it's getting harder and harder to achieve this doubling on the same schedule. Next, Bloom and co-authors turn to agriculture. Now, agriculture is a nice setting for studying innovation because agricultural products have been mostly unchanged for decades, maybe even centuries. You know, that is to say, while a phone today is not going to be the same thing as a phone from 50 years ago, an ear of corn today is more or less the same as an ear of corn from 50 years ago. So it's relatively easy to measure really long-run technological change in agriculture. And like Moore's Law, annual yields, on the whole, advance at a remarkably consistent rate for more than half a century for major crops. Yet, once again, those gains are costing us more and more to achieve. So, just as they did for Moore's Law, Bloom and co-authors calculate uh, the effective number of researchers working on the problem of increasing yields in four major crops, corn, soybeans, cotton, and wheat. There's two different ways to think about this problem. It makes it a little bit more complicated. You could think of R&D effort devoted to sort of improving the plant itself through breeding and genetic engineering, but you could also take a broader perspective and think that it includes things like fertilizer or pesticides and sort of the broader environment in which these plants grow. So they do it both ways. And if you look at the broader measure that includes chemical support and stuff like that, in corn, the number of effective researchers has gone up sixfold, same with soybeans. In cotton and wheat, it's gone up a lot less, maybe doubled. But if you look at just effort to improve the plants themselves through breeding and genetic engineering, in corn, and soybeans, that's up by a 20 factor of 24 since the 1970s. And in cotton and wheat, it's up at least sixfold, maybe something like tenfold for cotton. So for cotton and soybeans, or sorry, I should say, for corn and soybeans, the pattern is just like with Moore's Law. No matter how you slice it, the scale of R&D resources devoted to improving yields has increased a lot with no concomitant increase in yield growth. Now, if you look at cotton and wheat, on the other hand, there are actually long periods 
where R&D resources were roughly constant, a couple decades, and yet growth was also constant. So we'll see elsewhere that this is not the only case where this happens. Sometimes you are able to achieve constant innovation with a constant number of research effort. But before we move on to another example, I can't help pointing out this weird parallel between agricultural yield growth and Moore's Law. So just as Moore's Law is about packing transistors more densely onto circuit boards, the growth in agricultural yields is actually mostly about packing plants more densely onto farmland. At least that's the case for corn. It might be the case for other crops as well, but I haven't seen data on that. And what I mean that is if you plot the data, a corn plant in 1963 yields basically the same number of bushels as a plant in 2020. But yield per acre has more than doubled because we now are able to pack more than twice as many of those plants onto each acre. Next, Bloom and their co-authors look at health outcomes, another domain. In this case, rather than trying to count how many researchers or research dollars are being spent fighting some disease, which is going to be really challenging given spillovers where R&D for one disease might have an implication for another one, instead they're going to measure the amount of research devoted to each disease by counting the number of publications or clinical trials that are related to a given disease. And to measure progress against each disease, they're going to calculate life years lost due to each disease for a constantly sized population of 100,000 people, and then use that to back out the number of life years saved by progress. And what you see when you do this, if you compare the number of lives saved to the number of publications or the number of clinical trials, is that on the long run, you're saving less years of life for each clinical trial for every set of 100 publications, for example. But again, it's not a consistent downward trend in all cases. For cancer research, there was a period from 1975 to roughly 1985, maybe 1990, where you know each clinical trial saved the same number of lives. It wasn't declining, and each publication actually saved more lives than the one that came before it. Since the 1990s, though, we've seen this steep fall off where the number of lives saved, the progress we're making is getting slower and slower. It takes more and more publications, more and more clinical trials to save the same amount of life as it did in the past. In another domain that isn't covered by Bloom and co-authors, Bezeroglu 2020 has this interesting master's thesis that compares progress in machine learning to research effort. And Bezeroglu computes research effort in different machine learning domains by counting the number of unique authors that are publishing papers on these topics, and he can pull this data from the Web of Science and Archive. Now, progress in machine learning is nice because it can be measured on a wide variety of these sort of standard, widely accepted benchmarks. For example, the the accuracy classifying images on this ImageNet standard data set. And broadly speaking, increased research efforts in this field have not yielded any visible increase in the growth rate of progress. The main takeaway from his work is that even though R&D resources in these fields have increased by an order of magnitude, the rate of progress has not really sped up because improvements per researcher have fallen. And he looks on this for image classification, but also natural language processing and machine learning on graphs. They also show the same thing. Now, all this is pretty suggestive, but at the end of the day, it's quantitative case studies, really. And with case studies, we're always going to be maybe a little bit worried that the cases we're selecting are unusual and atypical. So Bloom and co-authors also extend their analysis to the much larger set of all U.S. publicly traded firms. Now, it's not hard to compute R&D effort for firms. You just divide their R&D spending by the typical wages of a scientist. But it is harder to come up with a measure of 
innovation that's consistent across lots of different kinds of companies doing lots of different kinds of things. So Bloom and co-authors resort to some crude measures that are plausibly linked to innovation. They're going to look at growth in sales, growth in market capitalization, growth in employment, and growth in revenue per worker. And the idea here is that a more innovative firm is going to maybe create better products and services, or maybe it's going to find cost efficiencies, and that's all going to lead to growth on any of those four dimensions. But these are crude dimensions because other things besides innovation can affect them. For example, a firm that's not innovative at all but enters a new market could see growth in a lot of this stuff, you know, more sales, uh, more market capitalization, more employment. Wouldn't necessarily see more revenue per worker, though. However, we've got thousands of observations, and we're going to hope that these sort of omitted factors are randomly distributed among innovating and non-innovating firms over time so that we can just look at how our measure of innovation per R&D worker changes over time and not be misled by the sort of omitted variables. Now, you know, if this was the only data that I was presenting or that Bloom and co-authors had presented, I don't think a lot of people would be totally convinced. But in concert with the other data, I think it's a lot more compelling. So if you compare growth in sales per R&D worker across two decades, that's how these guys are going to compute the change in research productivity for all publicly traded U.S. firms. And the main message you get is that most firms are getting less productive in terms of their research uh, over time. Okay, uh, The growth rate in sales per R&D worker has dropped over time. It's not universal. There is a significant share of firms that saw a constant or an increase uh, in the growth rate of sales per R&D worker, just as we saw for some crops and for some health innovation. Uh, but it is the, the majority, the vast majority of firms, the opposite is true. They're getting less out of their R&D over time. Now, so far, all of these examples have been specific to the United States. So one objection might be, well, maybe this is actually just a U.S. problem. Uh, maybe you guys are just in a long-term decline for lots of reasons unique to you. I say this as somebody who lives in the United States. Uh, but Boeing and Hootermund replicate this part of the Bloom et al. study for Germany and China, and they get really the same flavor of results. Uh, once again, they're using data on the growth rate of sales, at least in the thing I'm looking at here, per effective R&D worker. And they're looking at a broadly representative sample of German firms that conduct R&D or publicly traded Chinese firms. And while the decline in research productivity is pretty similar in the U.S. and Germany, in China it's actually much higher. And as we'll see, this isn't the only evidence that innovation is getting harder in more places than just the United States. Now, another crude but very common measure of innovation is called total factor productivity. Total factor productivity, or TFP for short, is statistically estimated as the amount of quality-adjusted output that you can squeeze out of a mixed set of various inputs. Think here, things like capital, labor, land, energy, etc. So if you invent a new process to more efficiently make the same amount of output with less inputs, that's going to show up as an increase in this TFP measure. Similarly, if you invent a new and more valuable kind of product that doesn't take any more inputs to build, that's also going to show up as an increase in TFP. Importantly, you can compute TFP for an entire industry or for an entire economy, and that makes it a favorite measure of sort of innovation writ large. Now, just like the, the last section, these measures can also be misleading because TFP can move around for reasons unconnected to innovation. But again, in concert with other evidence, it does start to look more compelling. Miyagawa and Ishikawa 2019 have a working paper that uses TFP to look at how research productivity has changed between 1996 and 2015 for a set of Japanese manufacturing industries 
and for manufacturing and information services overall in five countries, Japan, France, Germany, the UK, and the United States. Now, when they look just within Japanese manufacturing industries, they find sort of a mixed bag, actually. Some industries saw TFP growth per effective researcher rise over that 20-year period. Others saw fall. Overall, on net, it was a decline in research productivity, but it actually wasn't statistically significant. However, when you look more broadly at how research productivity changed in the overall manufacturing sector of these five different countries, in this case, they do find declining research productivity for every country they study. And when they look at how total factor productivity in the information services sector declined, they mostly find they declined. But in Germany, for example, TFP growth per effective R&D worker was higher in the second half of the period than in the first half. So lastly, let's return to Bloom and, the, and co-authors. In the United States, we can actually estimate total factor productivity for the entire United States, as well as R&D effort, along to, for a long way back. We can go all the way back to the 1930s. And so far, almost all this data has been 1970 forward. So this is kind of a unique opportunity to push this back a long way. And when we compare those two trends, or those two data sets, we see the same thing that goes all the way back to the beginning. For as long as we have data, it's taken more and more effort more and more R&D resources to sustain a constant rate of technological innovation. So to sum up, looking at the rate of technological advance across a variety of sectors, that is computer chips, agricultural yields, health, machine learning, we see this strong tendency for a constant rate of advance to be sustainable only by significantly increasing research efforts. Proxies for innovation in firms, industries, and countries also find the same general tendency. That is to say, the march of progress needs more and more effort to sustain it. Now, it's not a universal rule. There are exceptions in certain fields that can sometimes go on for decades, uh, but it does seem to be sort of a general tendency that innovation gets harder. To close, though, let's consider a few potential objections to all this evidence. So one common complaint about this whole exercise is that these case studies are focusing on the wrong things. For example, agricultural crop research is about a lot more than maximizing yields. Uh, GMO technology that makes a crop resistant to pests it might not increase the yield much, but it makes farming more profitable by reducing the need for some pesticides. Uh, other agricultural research reduces the vulnerability of crops to extreme heat or drought. And if you're living in a year without drought or heat stress, it might look like all that research was wasted. It didn't do anything. So if an increasing share of research is devoted to these non-yield factors, it might be the case that R&D is just as productive as ever, uh, and we're just mismeasuring the thing that it's trying to achieve. And you could make similar cases for Moore's Law, machine learning, anything else. And that's actually totally fair, I think. If you more correctly align the goals of research with R&D effort, it's probably going to make R&D effort look more productive than in these ones that we've talked about today. But it's actually pretty hard, I think, to believe that the effect would be big enough to change the core conclusion that innovation gets harder as a general tendency. If you look at corn, for example, research effort is up between 6 and 20-fold, depending on how you want to measure it. Now, to have constant R&D productivity, that means that the share of research that leads to better yields needs to have fallen by an offsetting 83 to 95%. Now, it wouldn't surprise me that the share of research devoted to yield growth has fallen over this period, but I don't believe it's cratered to such a tiny fraction of overall effort relative to the 1970s. And the numbers don't look great for other factor or the other case studies either. Semiconductor research is about more than cramming transistors onto circuits, I know. 
But, you know, has the share of research devoted to that goal really fallen from 100% of R&D effort in 1970 to just 5% by 2015? That's the kind of change that would be needed to generate these numbers when research is actually just uh, as productive as ever. So a second objection is we might say if we might ask in question if it's really appropriate to expect the rate of progress to be related to the number of scientists working on something. As a counterexample, let's imagine that we're talking about culinary scientists who are inventing new recipes. So suppose culinary scientists can come up with one new recipe per year. At one recipe per year, the growth rate of recipes is going to be 10% per year when there are just 10 recipes, but 1% per year when there's 100 recipes. And the rate of progress is going to slow down if the number of culinary scientists doesn't change. But in this case, this, this thought experiment, we can't really say innovation has gotten harder. It's just that progress is constant and linear, and we were incorrectly assuming it would be constant and exponential. Now, this seems like a super reasonable objection. But in fact, it's so reasonable that this is actually already what economic growth models did assume. Remember at the beginning of this post, or at the beginning of this podcast, I said that Bloom et al. 2020 was ostensibly motivated to test one of the predictions of some economic growth models. Well, this is actually the prediction these papers are trying to test, or at least closely related to that. The main difference between the thought experiment I gave you and what these papers assume is that these models assume that the absolute increase in innovations, that is something like recipes per scientist per year, is related not to the number of scientists, but the level of actual, real R&D resources devoted to research. So you can think of that as a mix of labor and capital. That is, scientists plus lab equipment, computers, access to archive, anything else that's going to be used to support their inquiry. In terms of our thought experiment, these models are going to assume that a culinary scientist plus the same set of, say, culinary research tools, that is, you know, a test kitchen and a library of cookbooks, is going to generate one new recipe per year. So there's a subtle distinction between R&D resources and R&D effort, which is what I have been talking about in this post. These models assume that real R&D resources always generate the same level of innovation. That's the idea that, you know, one culinary scientist plus the same set of equipment is always going to be able to turn out one recipe per year. But a constant level of R&D effort actually implies a changing number of R&D resources. R&D effort in this post or in this podcast has been measured as the effective number of researchers. That is the number of researchers you could hire if you spent all of your R&D on researchers. But that's not what people actually do. In fact, they buy a bundle of research labor and research capital. And the trick in these models is that the capital side of that equation gets cheaper or the capital gets better as an, account, as an economy grows so that the same amount of research effort goes farther and further as an economy gets richer. Under some seemingly reasonable assumptions, all these effects balance out so that the same number of researchers supported by an improving technology base can sustain a constant rate of technological progress. That's what's predicted by these models. And that's the prediction that is apparently falsified by all this evidence. So let me say this one more time. Under some seemingly reasonable assumptions, if you write down a model of economic growth where a constant level of real R&D resources generates a constant level of innovations, that's still going to lead to a constant growth rate of innovation because R&D resources improve with the economy over time. 
And so the same level of R&D effort is eventually buying you more resources. That's the prediction Bloom et al. show doesn't hold. But I think that there's actually an even simpler way to respond to this critique. And recall, if we go back to the beginning, the critique is that uh, we shouldn't ex- we should have never expected innovation to be constant and exponential with the same number of researchers. We should have expected it to be constant and linear. And that's that the rate of progress is just what most people care about because it's what we've become accustomed to and it's business as usual. We expect our computers to get twice as fast every few years because that's just how it's always been at least in our lifetimes. We expect crops to yield a couple more bushels per year because that's how it's been for our lifetimes. We expect healthcare to save a few more years of life per year, machine learning benchmarks to be notched up every year, and to be a few percent richer every year as a society because that's just what we're accustomed to. And what this line of work shows is that sustaining that kind of business as usual requires steadily more R&D effort. Thanks, everybody. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.